Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Ryan McDermott, Elise Lonich Ryan, and me, Grant Martsoff. I'm a professor and UPMC Health Systems Chair at the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing and a faculty fellow with the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E, jewelers.com. So hello, and welcome again to the Beatrice Institute podcast. With me today is Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Jessica is the Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas and the Classical Education and Humanities Graduate Program. She holds a PhD in literature from Baylor University. Jessica is a writer, as well as a sought-after speaker on various topics, such as classical education and the role of poetry in modern life. She's the author of three books of literary criticism, primarily focused on the writing of novelist Flannery O'Connor, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Walker Percy. In 2020, she released a co-edited volume of essays called Solzhenitsyn in American Culture, Russian Soul in the West. In 2018, she won the Christianity Today Book Award for Culture and Arts for her book, Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov. So Jessica, this is the very first podcast that I'll be recording for Beatrice Institute, and I want to thank you for joining me today. Wow, I'm honored to be the first. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll uh, work together. I know that you're uh, experienced at, at these sorts of formats, so maybe you can help me out. <laughs> well, it's just fun to have a conversation. So first, would you fill out some of your professional biography for me and the listeners? How'd you get to where you are now at the University of Dallas? Sure. Well, I did. I'm going to actually start way back in high school. When I uh, was a high school student, my dad was always bringing stories to the breakfast table and making sure that no matter what kind of vocations we were pursuing, that we were living in these great stories. And so he would recite Shakespeare to us and um, make sure we were reading Lord of the Rings for fun and things like that. And so when I was choosing colleges, I chose Pepperdine University because they had a great books program. So I really could study everything from Homer all the way up to Flannery O'Connor. And that was really important to me as a student. And then that became just the heart of my education is the great books and the great tradition. So I went on to teach at a classical school. I taught fourth through high school for a few years at uh, Covenant Classical in Fort Worth. And then I received my master's at University of Dallas, which is really a great books college. And I went on to teach in the great text department while I worked on my PhD in literature and theology at Baylor. Again, great text were really the heart of my education. So I've dedicated myself to that for the last 15 years now of teaching. Um, What are the great stories and and how do we pass them on? Great. So during our conversation today, I'll focus primarily on discussing the work of Walker Percy, who's been a very big influence uh, for me both personally and professionally in the way that I think and uh, in the way that I try to live. But just as a point of background, Walker Percy was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1916 within a Southern aristocratic family. Percy was trained as a physician, but never actually practiced medicine. Ben said he wrote six novels, a number of essay collections. In 1962, Percy won the National Book Award for his novel, The Moviegoer. His books are often described as philosophical, dealing with issues related to the search for the self in the modern West, semiotics, the existence of evil, 
and his books are deeply influenced by Russian literature, which you discuss in one of your earlier books, existentialism, as well as his deep Catholic faith. So in, 19, in 2018, Jessica, you published a book called Reading Walker Percy's Novels, uh, and I think it's a really great introduction to his work. So what interested you in Percy enough to write an entire book introducing his novels to the readers? Well, it goes back to my work in Dostoevsky. I just found that there was a lot of connection between the spiritual urgency of the Russian novels and how they were confronting the turns in society, especially towards, well, in their culture, it was towards nihilism, utilitarianism, these problems that we were facing in various forms in our own culture. And it seemed like the Russians had the answer, specifically Dostoevsky. And I started noticing that the writers that I loved in American literature, like Walker Percy and Flannery O'Connor, seemed heavily indebted to Dostoevsky. It seemed like they were drawing their source for confronting these societal evils from him specifically. So I began researching the connections between the two worlds. And what I found was that Walker Percy, when he switched, as you said, from becoming a doctor to a novelist, he had no training. So what he did was he looked at Dostoevsky. He studied all of Dostoevsky's novels. And at least for his first two to three novels, he was imitating him pretty directly. (laughs) So when he was studying, he studied The Idiot, for example, and wrote The Last Gentleman. I mean, almost like page by page, he literally would mark on page and say, like, use this, use this, use this. Uh, So he was studying how to be a great novelist from Dostoevsky. And that intrigued me enough to continue reading his work. And it was my my book on Dostoevsky and Percy that actually the Louisiana State University Press publisher contacted me and asked if I would write a more accessible teaching guide to Percy based on the work I'd done. And so I was able to write that book in just a few months because it was really just talking to the reader. Here are the books I love. Here are the things that you need to know about Percy in order to really appreciate him and just kind of walking step by step through his books as though students were in my classroom or readers were in my classroom getting to to hear these things. When you talk about Percy being a doctor first, I mean, he really is the great diagnostician, right? And so one of the things I love about Percy that is different from Dostoevsky is he's not just responding to the cultural evils. He's actually diagnosing them in a way that we may have missed. We may know that things are rotten in the world. Something's bad. Something has fallen. Something's messed up. And then Percy points out why and and what are the symptoms that are signaling to us that there's a problem. And I love that about him. He always takes kind of that approach of diagnosing the evils um, so that we can hopefully begin to find cures. Yeah, and we'll return to that notion of Percy as the diagnostician a little bit later. But I do want to get into the uh, one of his chief topics that he really focuses on quite a bit, a central theme that runs through his work and that is central to his uh, diagnostic scheme is this phenomenon of despair. So Percy introduces this concept in his first novel, The Moviegoer, where the protagonist, his name is Binks Ballings, and he lives a very simple life in the suburbs of New Orleans, which consists of shopping for home appliances, going to the movies, running around with his secretaries. But one day... Bollings discovers that his that this existence no longer satisfies. He sets out on a quest to transcend what he calls the everydayness of his life and to solve this despair. So I'm hoping that you can describe the nature of this despair that Percy's diagnosing. What's the primary cause of what's driving this despair, at least as he sees it in that moment in the 1960s? Yeah, I think it's uh, he steals from Kierkegaard the line in his epigraph that to be in despair is to not know you're in despair. And so what happens in the moviegoer is that someone 
becomes on Binks becomes on to this search, which is going to pull him out of the despair. If he had not known that he was in despair, he could not begin this journey. And again, that goes back to Percy as a diagnostician, right? To know that you're in despair, to show, to be shown that there is actually a problem. And so Binks gets put onto this quest uh, by almost dying in war. He is, uh, I think it's the Korean War he's fighting in, and he has kind of this Tolstoyan moment, like Prince Andre laying on the battlefield and uh, and looking up at the sky. So for him, it's a moment where he's looking at a dung beetle, and it's just this small awareness of life versus death. And for Percy, this becomes the guiding division for all of his characters. Why be alive rather than be dead? And if you're asking that question, then you are no longer a zombie walking around life in death, so to speak. And you're already on to a different kind of quest by trying to answer that question. Why be alive and not be dead? Um, and it's the question that comes to most characters in Percy's fiction by facing death, by facing their own mortality. So Percy refers to this notion of the Cartesian split as the first cause that thrusts modern man into this despair, this trying to figure out if it's worth making it through a Tuesday afternoon. So what, what is the Cartesian split and how has it made us lost in the cosmos to borrow uh, some of Percy's favorite terms? Yeah, so the despair comes upon us because, again, this life and death situation, which we don't really know who we are. And we're, we're uncertain who we are because we have fallen for this cultural narrative that's predominant in which we are either a machine we are a, a force of science, I, I guess, that we can become transhuman by becoming more like computers and uh, calculating ourselves, improving ourselves by changing the data, etc. Or on the other hand, we are merely beasts. And it's all about our chemicals. It's all about uh, feeding us correctly. It's all about taking care of our sexual urges or the belly urge or whatever it is. And we're just beasts that have to be behavior modified. <laughs> And Percy's saying, you know, that kind of Cartesian split between either being these angels in the machine or being the beasts is not adequate to understand why mothers love their children, why a fellow soldier would die for another on the battlefield. It doesn't explain what it means to be a human being. Why write poetry? Why sing songs? Why are we doing these things that don't fit into the machine idea or the angel in the machine idea? He calls us angels or beasts or it doesn't fit in the beast idea, that we have to be something more than that. And he's saying that that's the primary cause of our despair is that, is that we get locked into one of those modes of being and ways of seeing ourselves that doesn't really make sense for who we are. Right, so the, the quest then is to try to find some integration between the angel and the beast and hold those together. And what he would call the tertium quid, the third. So it's not just those two. I mean, we're not... We're not just those two things. We're a third part. In C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, he writes that we are the chest, the seat of the person, the heart, is actually what makes us most human. And Lewis was a big influence on Percy. It's that third element that goes together. So we are minds or spirits, um, anima, right? We are also bodies and we are hearts. We're moral beings that act according to um, what's beautiful and true and good. And those are the three aspects of a human person. So Percy doesn't want to ever leave out that third part of us that's just not, it doesn't fit in the Cartesian divide. So what do you see as the prominent uh, contemporary bestial angelic responses to despair? So in other words, what, what does the 21st century Percy and protagonist look like 
you know, one of the great sadnesses in my life is Percy isn't here to help us through. So what does his protagonist look like? He writes in a novel in 2020. What, is, what does that protagonist look like? Oh, it looks like David Foster Wallace or Vonnegut. <laughs> I mean, really, those are kind of the legacies of Percy, right? Or the, the sports writer, Richard Ford. Any of those three novelists, I think, are kind of picking up from where Percy came from and, and dealing with this malaise or despair in what it looks like in the 21st century. So the, I, I think the problem is many of us are going to relate to this. And so I'm not, I'm not castigating anyone uh, because we all have elements of this. When my for example, when my husband read Lost in the Cosmos, he didn't like it. He couldn't get all the way through it because he's like, I feel like he's making fun of me. Like, I feel like he's making fun of my life. And and that is the feeling that people get with Percy. Percy always said, I wrote enough to offend everybody. Um, that he's just, he's he's showing you how insufficient these things are. So it's not necessarily that it's bad to constantly, you know, like decorate your home. But is that is that your primary joy? Because that will ultimately leave you unsatisfied, right? Is your primary joy making your body as fit as possible? And all you do is listen to podcasts on wellness. And all you do is think about your diet every single day. And so you've made these things that should never have been religions into a religion. And they're going to be unfulfilling when they become that level of a good for you. And so a Percy protagonist now would be someone who's falling for one of these other religions in place of, for him, a true Catholic faith. So when you mentioned Vonnegut and David Foster Wallace, you think they themselves are, would be the protagonist or are you suggesting that, they, that their style of writing? Uh, yeah, their style of writing and their characters. I mean, especially Wallace, his, his despairing characters are just so Percy-esque, right? You know, the, the pale king, the one who's uh, an accountant and just like living through the day as though he himself is just a machine. Part of his makeup is just all quantifying everything all the time. And um, I think those kind of protagonists were getting the legacy of the outsiders from Percy's fiction. Yeah, we'll re- return to this a little bit too. I've heard that uh, some people believe that if uh, Wallace had lived long enough and unfortunately he tragically committed suicide when he was young, he might have become a Catholic. I know that he's he's... He's flirted with many of those ideas. He attended church quite often. Yeah, no, I would I would have hoped so. I mean, there's so much spiritual longing that very much resonates with Percy's characters. And the thing is, is Percy doesn't ever end his novels with an explicit character coming into the church in a way that he's hitting you over the head with it. So, for example, in The Moviegoer, we know Binks becomes a Catholic, but it's just never stated explicitly that he becomes a Catholic. And so, you know, we get the same kind of sense of despair in Wallace's novels, but it doesn't end with the pointing towards hope the way Percy's does, even if it's implicit or indirect. I know Percy was always concerned that he'd be a little too overt. He picked that up, I suspect, from Shelby Foote, who was always warning him not to be too overt with his Christianity or his Catholicism. So I have to, again, I I mentioned, I do wish Walker was here to help us through this particular moment. I keep thinking about the smartphones and the rise of social media and the endless scroll. Uh, I think Walker Percy would have a field day with this. So to what extent do you think the endless scroll is the ultimate angelic response to modern despair? That is such a fantastic question because you're exactly right. I mean, this is the problem is that we are distracting ourselves from ourselves he says, I think it's Lost in the Cosmos that begins with the Nietzsche quote, we are unknown, we knowers to ourselves. And this loss of identity is really a product of our own making because we have distracted ourselves from even getting to know who we are 
by thinking that we're being social through a screen, by thinking we are being connected to the world through this screen, which is actually disconnecting us from our ability um, to really get involved in the world. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest. She wrote a book called Prayers in the Night, and she talks about a person who decided to turn off all phones and like go on a silent retreat for a few days. And what happened is like all these memories from his childhood kind of rose to the surface. And this is very much like the movie goer, right? Like Binks Bowling has these memories of his brother dying, his father dying, like everything rises to the surface. And as he starts meditating on the search for the father, the longing he desires, that he feels, um, the pain of wanting something more than what you are currently experiencing, those things can be deadened by our phones, right? And we shut down those narratives, we shut down those memories, and they have to be allowed to rise up in silence in order for us to, to get to know ourselves and get to know our place in the world. So yes, I think Percy, you're right. I mean, you may have just started a novel just by <laughs> bringing up the question, like, what would a novel like that then look like? Right. And, and Percy often talks about how we feel most ourselves in the middle of catastrophe and pain. And I wonder if the phones keep us from ever experiencing that sort of shocking pain and, and, and discomfort, that then we can never know that we're in despair and the quest can never Right. Yeah. Who is it? Is it Postman that says we're entertaining ourselves to death? I mean, just we're, we're filling all of that pain with shopping online, with uh, looking at someone else's headline, with reading the latest posts, looking at other people's lives until it just, I mean, for Percy, suicide was the big thing he was always confronting because his dad and his grandfather and even going back to his first ancestor in America, they all committed suicide. So he had this legacy of suicide. And so he was always fighting suicide because he was afraid it would just come upon you unaware. You would be ignoring the pain, entertaining yourself to death until you woke up one day and didn't want to live. And you had to be prepared for that. It was almost like this, this demon in a sense. I mean, he does talk about it in this way that could come after you if you weren't careful, if you weren't watchful for those things. Yeah, I think he also said too in Lost in the Cosmos that the only truly happy person is the one that contemplates suicide but does not go through with it. Yes. Yes. The um, ex-suicide. That is exactly right. So you'd mentioned before that as a physician, Percy is often considered, often considered his role uh, to be diagnostic, to help the reader understand the predicament that he or she finds herself in. He describes this sort of diagnosis as finding fault lines in the terrain, but sometimes he seems reluctant to be overly curative. As we mentioned before, there's almost this fear that he would be proselytizing as opposed to writing good art Though I, I would argue, and many commentators would argue, that you can see the cl solutions clearly in Percy's work. So what extent do you think Percy does offer solutions out of this predicament that go beyond the, the angel and the beast? So what's the, what's the solution? And, and you mentioned this a little bit before, but maybe unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Well, part of it is he's raising questions, right? He's getting us to ask questions we haven't asked before. And the other part of it is he's crossing out all the possible cures that don't actually work. So when you read, for example, Lost in the Cosmos, it's nothing but questions. In some sense, it, he, he frames it as the last self-help book you'll ever need. But what he's actually doing is he's asking you all the questions a psychiatrist would ask you. He's being satirical there, though. They're not like, they're not great personal and loving questions. <laughs> they're, they're rather harsh questions. But he's asking them to you that you reflect upon these things uh, that you may not be thinking about in your normal day-to-day -day life. And that's one of the ways to get out of despair 
right? To get you to confront what's going on. But the second is to write you a di- to write a diagnosis is not enough. Then to write a cure, he doesn't want to just hand it to you because you're you're not going to want it. He believes the cure is a faith in Jesus Christ. And he knows how silly that sounds in the 21st century. People think that sounds ridiculous, right? To still believe in things like that. And so what he does is he says, okay, what if you believed in exercise and that was the cure? And then he shows it doesn't work. What if you believed getting in touch with yourself was the cure? And then he shows how it doesn't work. So he takes you through all these options for cures and crosses them all out until the only thing left on the page is belief in Jesus Christ. And so you have to think about what he didn't talk about that he always hints at that's the only thing left standing after he knocked over all your other sacred cows. Right. And it does seem that in a number of his novels, not all, that uh, the culminating scene tends to be a sacrament of some kind, whether it's the baptism in uh, The Last Gentleman or it's the Eucharist in Love in the Ruins and Thanatos. So, but particularly the Eucharist. Why does the Roman Catholic Eucharist offer a solution to this predicament? Why, and then the, sacram- the sacraments more generally, why is that a, a solution? Yeah, well, the connection between uh, the profane as a conduit for grace and the sacred, man, it means we're not alone. I mean, he's always writing about this sense of to be alone and to be isolated would really to be lost. And instead, these conduits of grace are reminders of the incarnation. God came down and did not allow us to try to figure this out by ourselves, right? The sacraments are reminders that the incarnation, that God came down and became human, that he suffers with us, that we are not alone in this. And then through these sacraments, we're able to participate in this gift, right? Responding to it, inhabiting it. In all the ways that we try to inhabit this world and we feel untethered, that we feel lost in the cosmos, the sacraments return us to the sense of tethering, this sense of we are souls in bodies and we have this true identity. And that can't be taken away from us when we experience it in the sacrament. Yeah, with Jesus is the ultimate expression of man, the, the deepest integration of the transcendent and the material, um, I think is especially important there as well. And now he also talks, and we talked about the sacraments, capital S, but Percy talks more generally about the sacramental life. What does he mean by that? And how does that get us out of despair, potentially, and hopefully? Yeah, I think he saw the turn more and more towards a kind of Gnosticism that would remove any importance to the physical world and that would also make us into, again, only angels floating or only into beasts. And by seeing the world in a sense that it it all is giving us glimpse of the divine. Um, it is all matter that can be inhabited in a sense. That to him was an important reminder of the reality then of the sacred sacraments in addition to the cosmology that allows for a sacramental reality. Yeah, and I, I think of uh, the end of Love and the Ruins, which we'll get to, is after he takes the sacrament, the Eucharist, the protagonist Tom Moore had the entire novel been abusing alcohol and, and running around with various women. But then he takes the sacrament and he's able to create integration. He's able to then take six shots of bourbon and make love to his wife in a way that is no longer bestial angelic, but is integrated. Uh, and that to me was the, the best sort of example of what a sacramental life might, might look like. Can a non-Catholic get Percy? Is that a possibility? I know that, I mean, he won the National Book Award, so somebody thought 
that this was good for the general public. But can a non-Catholic understand Percy? I think so. So the first, the, the moviegoer, which won the National Book Award, Percy was actually disappointed with its reception. Not that he didn't appreciate the award, but nobody got how Christian it was. And so when he set about to write The Last Gentleman, and he gets very Christian by the time we get to The Second Coming and by the time we get to Thanatos Syndrome, he's much more proselytizing in those works. He, he was like, I, I want my novels to be an ass-kicking for Jesus. I mean, that was, that was his goal. And so he was not going to—he was writing to non-Christians, but he was not going to be satisfied if the non-Christians didn't realize the book was Christian. And so he was always trying to figure out rhetorically— his audience were those who did not know, but who had felt the same kind of despair he'd experienced before he became Catholic. Because he was not cradle-born. He was a convert. And he was converted by novels that made him aware of his despair and showed him a way out. So he wanted to write those same kind of novels and save other people. And so that was very important to him that to reach mostly non-Christians, but only so that they would realize the truth of Christianity. So this past summer, I decided to reread Love in the it felt very apropos as many cities across the United States were burning in response to racial conflict in our nation. And so Love in the Ruins is Percy's big science fiction novel, and we've alluded to it a number of times uh, in, in this conversation. So it's set in the 1980s. The nation is becoming progressively more fragmented between left and right, black and white. And you begin to see the parallels with our current moment. His small southern town, that's the setting for the, the novel, has degenerated into warfare. The protagonist is named Tom Moore, is a psychiatrist who's invented a machine that can diagnose and cure the modern despair, which he thinks will address the chaos that he sees around him. Again, as I've been saying, it's one of my great sadnesses that we don't have Walker here to diagnose our current cultural moment. But I want to talk a little bit about Love in the Ruins and maybe make some connections to what we're experiencing right now. So first, uh, again, the protagonist's name is Tom Moore. What's the significance of the name Tom Moore? Uh, he appears in multiple books. This is a recurring character. Yes. Well, let me first say, you mentioned that the novel set in 1980s, but it's written in 1966. So for those of us in 2021, we may be like, oh, he went and wrote historical fiction. No, he wrote a prophetic science fiction novel looking 20 years ahead. And more realistically, he probably should have set it 50 years ahead to be more accurate to what he actually described, because Love in the Ruins sounds as though he was describing 2020. But Tom Moore is a character based on the saint Thomas Moore who wrote Utopia. And Utopia is the great satire of no place is the good place. The good place is no place. And Percy does that for Love in the Ruins. Can you create a utopia? And instead writes this dystopic novel showing us that you cannot. But what is more important about Thomas Moore is that he, he does become a saint. He becomes, the saints are actually the resource away from our own pride into creating utopias. And you have the saints who instead lower themselves enough to be satisfied where they are, to love where they are and love the Lord where they are. Yeah. And I also suspect too that uh, Percy probably had a special place for Tom, Thomas More, St. Thomas More as an English Catholic, which is a strange place to be as an English Catholic. Uh, so I suspect that has a little bit to do with it too. So Percy seems to be arguing in Love and Ruins that, um, the deep fragmentation that he sees is caused by this old nemesis of his, the Cartesian split, resulting despair. So why does Percy come to this conclusion that this social fragmentation is driven by personal despair? Uh, and how relevant is this despair in understanding the fragmentation we see in this moment in the United States? Is this what we're seeing or is this something else that's happening uh, that 
that's creating such upheaval in our, in our, in our moment. I think it's a both and sorry to, to, to pull that on you, but it really is. I mean, the fragmentation is always going to be caused by one person at a time. And of course, in, in that novel, you have someone courting the demonic, but demons are never single. They're legion. The demonic is always uh, contagious in that sense. So that's why I mean that it's a, a both and in that way that it's about individuals and about a larger sense. So you're suggesting it's both individual despair and a broader cultural despair. Right. Because to participate in, in evil is to feed evil. I'm sorry, I'm getting really theological on you. <laughs> But um, but Percy was really influenced by, by this idea of sin, and he deals with it more in Lancelot, but but he's starting to look at it as it plays out in Dostoevsky's Possessed and as he wants to write about it in Love and the Ruins, that it becomes possession. So when you have these small sins and you participate in them, you're actually just kind of like feeding the monster of evil that's going to continue bringing other people into it. And we see that in Love and the Ruins, that it brings Ellen, it almost brings Ellen down it's bringing other characters away. Um, it's leading to mass violence because he's, in a sense, feeding the demonic and courting the demonic. There's another way that it's both and, in that it's uh, both about that per- that potential time. He's writing it in the midst of the civil rights movement, in the midst of uh, the Cold War. Kennedy had just been shot. That was actually the major inspiration for him writing the novel is like, can I live in a country where a president is assassinated? What kind of place is this? So it is pertinent just to his particular place, but also speaks to where we are now that's different in the sense that um, what you talked about with phones, this isolation has increased. This polarization has increased. What was bad in the 1960s for polarization has come to the point that we are even further split from our neighbor than we were. And most of it has to do with us going down rabbit holes of lies and media that, that is not always truthful or only one-sided. And, and thus we're, I think the novel being written in the 21st century, you would see a more extreme view than we even see in Love in the Ruins. So I think part of the point of Love in the Ruins the extent that he's trying to teach and prescribe, is to help us learn. Tom Moore is trying to learn to live in the midst of chaos and division. I think he had set out to try to fix it with his machine, but what it really came down to is how do we live? How does Tom Moore then live in this within the midst of chaos and, and, and fragmentation? What do you think Percy's advice to us would be about how to live in the times that we find ourselves that are very similar to love and That's fantastic. Well, one for him is going to be the sacraments, as you mentioned, to really attend first and foremost to those practices that exhibit the faith, the gift you've received of faith. And so he, you know, this character, Tom Moore, is a Catholic who has neglected the Eucharist for so long. He's neglected participating in the church because of the loss of his daughter and because of wondering if life was meaningful or not. And then he replaces those practices with the practices of science and creating his own ways of fixing reality rather than the surrender that takes place in accepting the Eucharist, um, that you are not your own God and that you're reliant on a savior. And so the practice becomes really important in that story. Also the practice of marriage, not he was a divorcee, but the way that he had originally practiced marriage had nothing to do with his faith. He was uh, yoked with someone who was not a Christian and who was a spiritualist in some of the worst ways. And 
you know, she left him and then died. And so when he gets married again at the end of that novel, we see that he has a new way of practicing marriage as a sacrament. And that becomes important. Um, he ends with this kind of like Voltaire Candide way of looking at things like tend your own garden, right? Like cultivate your own little space in the world. But it does point to a higher truth that you can only attend to what is local and to try to fix the nation becomes a source of demonic pride. If you are so concerned with fixing the nation, which is abstract and doesn't actually exist in any concrete particular sense, rather than helping your neighbor, it's going to lead you astray. And so what he means by cultivating your garden at the end of the novel is participate in your local church, right? And you talk to your neighbors, see those around you rather than focus on the national or larger problems that are beyond you. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, so much with our access to so many different forms of media, we see these things happening in the world that we have absolutely no control over. And I wonder if that is part of what's happening where people feel very vulnerable. They have no control over the institutions that rule their lives. I wonder if this is what part of what we're seeing as well is in this sort of breaking out of, of violence is the response to the fact that there's nothing that we can do about all these things that, that seem to be really affecting our lives and maybe a, a return to those things that we can control like marriage and sort of your local community and, and those sorts of things. I think that's a really good point. I'm actually cur- currently reading your book, Giving the Devil His Due. I, I have to say I, I do read O'Connor, but I do not read much Dostoevsky, which is something I'm trying to slowly uh, remedy based on the urging of many friends, particularly my wife. Uh, in the introduction, you say, by reading Dostoevsky alongside O'Connor, we can unra- unravel how his, dethr- his dethroning of God and increase in violence occurs and perhaps map a way back to love and mercy. My first thought was Percy's work would have been a perfect illustration in this book, given the prevalence of evil and the devil in his work, I think especially Lancelot and Thanatos. So why did you make the choice to exclude Percy from this book about evil, considering he seemed to be very, pretty important for your thinking? And it's easy relevant. Why, why, why just focus on O'Connor and Dostoevsky? So I'm going to give you the really practical response. Um, I had a job lined up and there was 2007. It was a recession. And to keep doing Percy in addition to O'Connor and Dostoevsky would have taken another year. <laughs> so what I did was I then wrote another book on Dostoevsky and Percy that was separate. So it was, it was on my mind. And it was something that led me to write the next book on Dostoevsky and Percy. But it was not something I had time for at that moment. So I just have two books now. And it looks kind of funny, but I have two books on Dostoevsky and O'Connor and Dostoevsky and yeah, Percy. And I, actually, I hope you take this as a compliment because I mean it this way. I actually really love the fact that your books are short and they're, they're easy to read. I, really, I think they're, they're really good reads in, in addition to being uh, quite profound. So I think that was a good choice. It, it allowed me to read both of them. You know, Dan Mahoney uh, is a friend who writes on Solzhenitsyn, and he <laughs> he saw me a few years ago, and he said, the best thing you do as a writer is write short books. <laughs> so I do want to discuss this theme of evil in Percy. I think it's important. So in arguably his darkest book, Lancelot, which you've referred to previously, the protagonist, protagonist is a man named Lancelot Lamar. The, the story is him recounting uh, this, this, this act of tremendous violence. He's recounting this act of priest friend, uh, that the, the violent act was the murder of his wife and her mother, amongst other people. And fundamental to this book is Percy's claim, it seems to me, that modern man can no longer see evil for what it is. So he needed to shout to his readers, so to speak, in the way that Flannery O'Connor would say to the blind, he needed to draw, draw big, bold pictures into the deaf and shout. 
So he needed to personify evil so that his readers could name it as such. So in this book, Lancelot said many times it was impossible to sin because everything that historically had been defined as sin is redefined as either neutral or even a good. So basically, I think Percy is arguing that after the death of God, everything is permissible and we don't know how to live any longer. So to what extent is Percy's concern truly manifested among modern man? In other words, can modern man really truly no longer see evil? And if so, why, how do we get here? Well, especially because people who are participating in such evil will connect it so much to their identity in so many ways. Uh, a lot of the sins that we have blessed in our culture have become people's identity. And so it's locked them in two forms of sin that they can't get out of. They, they don't get to know themselves truly. And this is what Lancelot is pointing to, and he kind of hints at several times in the fiction. And I I think it's a... A problem not just with understanding sin, but understanding guilt, and Tom Moore talks about that too, not knowing then that you're guilty. So if you don't have sin and you can't name it as such, then you can't feel guilty. If you don't feel guilty, you don't need to repent. If you don't need to repent, where's God? There's no relationship. So everything becomes a matter of self-improvement, of self-idealization. In The Last Gentleman, for example, Rita, one of the characters, is talking about a young man who's about to die. And she says, I just want him to get as much self-fulfillment before he goes. You know, we have this, this conception that that becomes the purpose of life. Whereas the Old Testament story is heavily, I mean, really the Torah is just this completely boring five books, mostly boring five books, about the law. But it's so important for understanding God's holiness and our sinfulness that you have to read it regularly or else you don't have that sense of sin and guilt that Percy says is so necessary for the grace and beauty of understanding that's in the New Testament. And so Percy really wants us, he wants us to feel guilty. He wants us to realize that, that we may then know our salvation. Right. So to what extent are Percy's notions of evil similar and different from O'Connor? This is your opportunity to make this connection that you weren't able to make because of your job. (laughs) Well, so O'Connor is much more concerned with the personal. And I hope this doesn't just argue against what I said a second ago, that he wants people to feel guilty. But Percy is, I would say, is much more concerned with the church than O'Connor is. So in O'Connor, she said, the point of the novelist is to show you the demon that you are possessed by, right? So she's just trying to get a reflection to see yourself as the cause of evil, right? What's It's kind of like in um, Dante and Purgatory when he goes up to, it's like the middle of the whole Divine Comedy journey. And he says, here's my big question, Marco, this guy that's in the Circle of Wrath. uh, What's wrong with the world? And Marco says, the fact you have to ask that means you're still in the world. You're blind to its problems because the answer is yourself. The problem begins with you. You're the problem. And, and this is, you know, Chesterton has that famous answer too, right? Like uh, they asked him to write what's wrong with the world. And he wrote, dear sir, I am yours truly, GK Chesterton. So the problem begins with yourself. And that for, for O'Connor is the answer. For Percy, it's much more about how that affects everyone around you. Right. So how does that then affect Ellen, uh, Tom Moore's wife? How does that affect Tom Moore's children in the Thanatos syndrome or affect the institutions of schooling, the institutions of the church, the church that shouts Hosanna 
and God bless America at the same time in their service, right? Like he wants to see how is sin actually affecting our local life at a, at a, so not national really. I mean, he does show national. Um, he does give those panoramics, but much more about our marriages, our children, our families, our churches. So that, I think that's a really good actually transition to the next section that I want to talk about, which is Thanatos, because that is inherently thinking about sin uh, in a very public way, uh, particularly through the, the work of, of the government and social scientists and policymakers. So again, Percy takes on the topic of evil in his final book, Thanatos Syndrome, but it's in a slightly different context and tune from Lancelot. And in Thanatos Syndrome, he has sort of well-meaning social scientists and policymakers in his crosshairs. Again, uh, we're reintroduced to Tom Moore. Uh, he's the protagonist again. And it's more or less a thriller in which Moore is trying to discover why so many people in this county are reverting to these strange patterns of sexual linguistic behaviors that he found very unusual in his in his medical practice. And we find that the government uh, has initiated something called the Blue Boy Program in which sodium ions are introduced into the water. And they're meant to placate the population. And it's actually been very successful. Reductions in crime, reductions in teen pregnancy, depression, anxiety, even reductions in HIV AIDS infections. Uh, this book was written in the 80s, so that was very much top of mind at that, at that moment. But it has these terrible side effects as uh, the sodium ions induce this particular sameness or flatness or subservience in the population. And then these social engineers are able to use these side effects to their advantage to abuse children, to abuse women, uh, to advance their eugenic priorities through abortion and euthanasia. Uh, and he's very clear that kindness and tenderness of the social en- engineers lead to very heinous crimes. And it seems to me that Percy's arguing that in order to produce a peaceful ordered society, we likely have to destroy the human soul because it's untamable and unpredictable. So what does Percy show us about what is truly achievable through social science and public policy? What can we really achieve in this world uh, through sort of our public life together, particularly the institutions of, of government? Going back to what we were talking about earlier with what Percy says is the human being, the problem with our current institutions is they don't recognize what human beings are. They are quantifying us. They are tallying us. We are, a, you know, a conglomeration of data to be utilized, to be moved through a system. And this is, so it's not really that the institutions themselves are problematic. The people running them have no more idea what a human person is And Percy is saying, okay, if we're going to run them correctly, we have to see them as these embodied souls, right? That have the element of heart and head and body. And instead, if we're just looking at them either as machines or bodies, we're going to run our institutions incorrectly, especially when it comes to education. Uh, This would be probably one of my big things is educationally, we treat them either as animals to be behavior controlled in the classrooms, we discipline them as though they're just animals. <laughs> and then we teach them as though they're just computers in progress. And we, we test them the way you test a machine. We calculate whether they've improved. Um, we experiment with them to see new methods of training, etc. And so Percy's kind of foreseeing that uh, in Thanatos Syndrome. It's probably his most prophetic, but it's one of his least literary works because he was trying to write to the people he thought was really were really causing the problem. So he writes it almost like in this John Grisham type way. And yet Percy's associated with these more literary novels. So literary readers hate that book 
and John Grisham readers don't know who Percy is. <laughs> so they, they don't get the Percy novel the way that he intended it to be received. So one thing that that book makes me think about, and this is also alluded to at the end of Lost in the Cosmos, which we'll talk about very briefly at the end. It seems as though Percy argues that we, in order to protect the dignity of man, we almost have to accept some degree of violence, evil, disorder, because the alternative is using power to crush sort of the human soul. I don't think that's true. So if you look at, you look at Lost in the Cosmos, he gives us the option to either program the human beings to get rid of evil. So go over, go over in space and start a new utopia, right? That is one of the options that he has shown throughout his fiction, and he gives that option in Lost in the Cosmos. But the other option is to help the helpless. So there's tons of deformed children in Lost in the Cosmos because of radiation, et cetera. Um, so to help those kids, to give them the Eucharist, you have two monks who have survived and are starting the new society of Jesus, to invest in marriage, to love the good things. They're listening to good music and having great conversation. And uh, I think he's roasting a pig or something. I don't remember. He's cooking something at the end. And so we have those two options for how you handle evil. So it's not that you just accept what is evil. For Percy, this he would get this from Dostoevsky. You cannot change the fact that there is suffering in the world. When you try to remove the suffering from the world is when you, you participate in the Blue Boy Project or in Dostoevsky's Possessed, or something along those lines, the Grand Inquisitor killing off all the heretics. And you're trying to control it with your limited resources. Instead, you have to love them. You have to extend charity. So a good stewardship practice is power invested to help the powerless. That's Andy Crouch in Culture Making says that. So you, you give back to those powerless and empower them. You love them. You kiss the leper. Your responses to suffering are not to program it, improve it, or get rid of it, but to love those who are actually suffering. Right, and, and accepting that suffering that maybe we can't always uh, manage it away. I don't, I, so I, I, the reason I keep hesitating, the language of accepting sometimes sounds like you're seeing it as a good or you're taking it as like, it's all okay. And I think especially if we look at black churches and black communities, that idea led to just the acceptance of plight, acceptance of the place. And I think the black church, their, their language and sermons like Howard Thurman and stuff like that, they're really showing like the language of acceptance can be really problematic. You're always resisting. You're always fighting for something good, but you're doing it through the means that God shows us in the scriptures and not through the means of the world. And I think you just have to, so you have to constantly fight it, but you don't fight it with the world's armor and with the world's weapons. So one thing that he talks a lot about in Thanatos, he borrows a line here from from Flannery O'Connor, is that he becomes exceptionally pessimistic about sort of elite social planners. He does not doubt their good intentions, but he goes so far as to say the tenderness of social planners leads to the gas chambers. And he borrows this line from Flannery O'Connor. What does he mean that tenderness leads to the gas chamber? Yeah. And I, okay, that was exactly what, that's a great lead. Cause that's exactly what I was talking about. It's the idea of acceptance and thus like humanitarianism, right? Is our antidote to suffering is humanitarianism, um, which is just too weak of a thing without suffering yourself. So humanitarians, yes, you may go with all these noble impulses, but if you yourself are not 
an embodiment of the incarnation. If you yourself do not embody the kind of humanism um, that sees yourself as least to those you are helping, humble enough, charitable enough to receive the grace to do the work, then you are functioning as the same as like a dictator, <laughs> right? Like it, it leads to the worst, ki- it sounds like it won't, but it leads to the worst kind of destruction of those who you say you're caring for. You know, you just want to help get rid of the suffering of the old man who's dying of cancer. And so you just disconnect his wires, right? Like it's that kind of response that is tender and appears humanitarian, but without the incarnation as its source, the suffering on the cross, the crucifixion, it just leads to terror to people saying like, we don't want, we don't want unborn children who have deformities because we just don't want to see them suffer like that. And, and it's like, no, I think they would choose life. Even, (laughs) even if they were missing limbs, even if they were missing the same power of their brains as, you know, I'm losing my words because I'm getting too passionate, but, but it's that kind of idea that O'Connor, Dostoevsky and Percy are all fighting against. And that means a lot to me that we don't fall into that trap, which looks so noble to me, the, the lies of Satan, if you see it in Dostoevsky, O'Connor, Percy, the lies of Satan are the ones that sound the most true to us. And it's just slightly twisted enough that we fall for it. So as we sort of wrap up here, uh, one question that I wanted to ask you is much of your work explores the influence of, well, Christian literature, a lot of Catholic literature uh, in the in the United States, but also in Russia. What unique contribution can the Catholic or Christian author make in the United States in this particular turbulent moment? What do we have to say? What do they have to say? I would say um, for Catholic writers, which really, I mean, and Christian writers, there's, there's actually quite a few of them who are speaking into the moment. The frustration on my side being Protestant has been a lot of Protestants who are so used to didacticism that they forget the art Catholic fiction is a great corrective to that because they are so focused on things, right, in a deep way. Uh, The sacramentality, like you talked about, sacramental reality. A reminder of that happens through good fiction, whether you're Catholic or Christian. So if Catholic writers can really attend to their art at the highest level so that the experience of the world is the sacramental cosmology, They don't have to worry about message. They don't have to worry even about the ass kicking for Jesus. Because in this current state of things, to just be reminded that there is an invisible reality that can be perceived through the visible world is enough of a corrective to start someone on that search. Is there anyone writing uh, currently that you find particularly effective as a Christian or Catholic writer? Oh, yeah. Um, so Leif Inger and Diane Glancy are both novelists. They're Protestants, but they're really good. Um, Diane Glancy wrote uh, The Reason for Crows about Saint... I'm going to get her name wrong. She's a Native American saint, and I'm too Texan to be able to speak properly. But um, but The Reason for Crows is a beautiful novel about that saint's life that would be worth looking up. Uh, Leif Inger, Virgil Wander is just a Percy-esque novel, if there ever was one. The, the character has amnesia at the start of it, which is like Percy's beginning of every novel should begin with a character who has an amnesia and then has to go, get to know the world again. So Virgil Wander is, is a great choice. Catholic novelist Michael O'Brien, I'll read anything that he puts out, even though they're huge novels. Father Elijah just brought me to my knees in tears reading that fiction. Um, Ron Hansen, of course, is, is kind of a go-to. He's just, he's really good. 
Um, Exiles, I think, is one of his, his more beautiful, almost nonfiction, historical fiction. This just lovely. Yeah, those are the novelists that I think of right away. Okay, so I do want to touch very quickly on Lost in the Cosmos, uh, sort of a last, a last theme here. So this is, is a, we've mentioned it a number of times during our conversation, it's a truly unusual book. So in some ways it's a satirical self-help book, but also deadly serious. Uh, it includes a deep exploration of the sort of pathological sources of selfhood in the 21st century. Uh, there's a long intermezzo that lays out his, uh, Percy's unique theory of semiotics. It ends with a series of short stories that try to sort of circle back on some of the themes that he's trying to um, discuss. In many ways, Lost in Cosmos is a cipher by which all the other books can be interpreted. So I was interested to see at the end of your book about Percy that you recommend people start with Lost in the Cosmos. Why do you suggest that? That's an interesting take. As you mentioned earlier, can non-Christians get Percy? You asked that question. Well, yes, they can, but I don't think they'll understand what he's up to as much as a Christian will see the signs, right? A Percy, Percy's world is all about seeing the signs and knowing what they signify. And Lost in the Cosmos really dedicates one's attention to signs and and what is signified. If you do not have the habits or the cultural practices that are given by the church to look for signs and see signification, you don't know to see it in Percy's fiction. But Lost in the Cosmos returns someone to seeing that signs signify things. And so for me, Lost in the Cosmos should be the starting place so that when you read all of his fiction— you're aware, you're looking, you're watchful in the way he wants you to be watchful. Okay. So I read it afterwards and, and I, I'd be interested to see how my experience of Percy would be different if I read Lost in the Cosmos first. So with that being said, if Lost in the Cosmos is first, what would be your reading plan, your Walker Percy reading plan for any of our listeners today that haven't read any of his books? I get this question quite a bit and I have my own reading plan, but I'm interested in your take. So I, well, I think this is a harder question than if you asked me about O'Connor. So when I talk to people about O'Connor, I always say start with Revelation and Parker's back, the character, the stories where characters don't die, and uh, then move towards the more gruesome once your palate is okay and you get what she's doing and you'll be maybe not less disturbed, but you'll be able to understand what your disturbance points to when you read O'Connor. With Percy, it's harder because he really finds his voice in different ways in these novels and it's so much more about palate because like I said, the Thanatos Syndrome is really a John Grisham sci-fi mystery novel. And so it just reads differently. The moviegoer is a more literary, realistic, existentialist, linear plot. And people can get a hold of that without any problems. Like they just, they know how to read realism and it's so short. So if that's what you're used to, then read that one. If you're drawn to just like sci-fi action stories with great philosophy in it, then Thanatos if it's more your bag to have the experimental, weird, dark fiction, Lancelot, <laughs> right? If you want to laugh for a majority of the book, then either The Last Gentleman or Lost in the Cosmos. And then if you're really looking for something that just makes you feel good and is not going to make you feel bad, The Second Coming. It's his fable. It's his romantic fable. So he just writes such different, it's almost a different genre for every book he wrote it's hard to say what to start with because they don't ascend in any order. They're more about what are you in the mood for at this time? And they're all telling the same story with a different mode. Although that's interesting that you, um, that you highlighted the difference because a lot of people say Percy wrote the same novel 
six times. So I mean, it's interesting that you that you focus on the difference as opposed to the, the sameness, the similarity. And in a sense, he did. I'm, I'm going to echo that. He writes the same novel six times with six six different modes for six different types of readers. He is trying to capture a reader with the same ideas in place, but with just different temperaments, different styles. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure discussing Percy with you. Anytime I get to talk about Walker Percy is a good time. So I really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully we'll uh, see each other again someday. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.